Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 633 of the podcast and it is Friday the 8th of July 2022 as I record this. So in today's show I'm talking to thriller author Tess Gerritsen about writing for the long term, how she rejuvenates her creativity, writing a series, writing medical thrillers and much more. So some of the show is on craft and some on the author life, all coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, it's kind of related, but uh, there was a report out this week on the creator economy by The Tilt, which is a curated newsletter for content entrepreneurs. So while that group is wider than just authors, many of them have books and we are definitely part of the creator economy. The same principles apply. Essentially, we create things and then we try to reach people and sell things with online tools, basically. And the survey featured over a thousand content creators. And what was interesting was 40% of the respondents were Gen X, people in their 40s and 50s, people like me, maybe people like you. So this wasn't just uh, young people. It was also people in the latter half of their life or midlife. Let's call it midlife. So some of the key findings that I thought were interesting, the first thing is that people are generally making a living, not making a killing. And a reminder that we often hear about the outliers, those making absolute bank every month. But those are the stories that get amplified. And most authors, most content creators are not making six figures a month. (laughs) So let's celebrate even making enough money to buy dinner out or paying the mortgage, especially at this time of uh, difficulty in the economies around the world. Certainly it is everywhere right now. So I think that's good to remember that, um, yeah, making a living, not a killing. The biggest challenge is making sure that content gets found. So marketing and discoverability and also monetizing content. So I thought that was good to know because I think those are the emails I get every day from authors. And yeah, I think that's a challenge for everyone. Then there were some really interesting things. The top motivator for full-time creators is independence. The desire to set your own schedule, your goals and your career path. 90% say said they chose to launch content businesses to seek out financial freedom on their own terms. So yeah, I feel like that search for independence and freedom is common to all of us in this space. Another interesting stat is that only 6% said they thought a college degree is required to succeed as a content creator. What is necessary, though, are business skills to drive revenue. And this is fascinating because there are so many people who are like, oh, well, do I need a degree in writing or publishing or marketing or anything? Well, while I personally have two college degrees... They are in useful subjects like theology and psychology. Yes, I have my master's in theology and then I did um I was going to become a clinical psychologist so I did a um a postgrad diploma in psychology neither of which 
I have used, although my character Morgan Sierra in my arcane thrillers is entirely based on what I learned in those times. But no, my business now as, and what I've done for over a decade full time has got nothing to do with my college degrees. So if you are, and I certainly don't regret my degrees, I really enjoyed them, um, but you certainly don't need one to make a living as a writer. Also, 75% of content creators say the industry is too dependent on big tech like Meta, Google and Amazon. All it takes is an algorithm change, policy modification, platform shutdown or fraudulent takeover to shut down a revenue stream and cause a legion of loyal followers to vanish. Uh, the, the survey said creators are trying to take back control of their audiences by investing in things like paid membership paid memberships, owned communities, direct sales and various Web3 things. So again, and I think we, most of us feel this way, but yet we also have to use these services and we're very happy and grateful for these services, absolutely happy and grateful for them. But equally, if we really want to be independent, we do need these other things. Full-time content creators spend about half their time creating content. The other half is spent on business issues like content distribution, promotion, marketing, sales and admin operations, as in running the business. And yeah, this is another question we get a lot, which is how can you say you're a writer when you don't spend 100% of your time writing? Well, it's true for pretty much any full-time creator, I guess, is that half the time is creating stuff and the other half is all the other part of running the business. And then finally, just 1% regret the decision to become content creators. They say content creators may be the most satisfied workers on the planet. It's not that they don't want more for their business. Everybody does want more revenue, more free time or a bigger audience. But nearly every content creator surveyed has no regrets. And I love that because I definitely feel this way that uh, heart, there's always going to be issues with any career choice, always going to be issues. But essentially, we, <laughs> well, at least we can choose our issues <laughs> and choose the time we spend on our author business. And yeah, as I've said many times, I measure my life by what I create. And I do like writing books. So I'm happy we can continue doing that. So yes, link in the show notes to the complete report. That is the Creator Economy Report by The Tilt. So in my personal update, I am still in finishing energy. <laughs> the audiobook for how to write a novel is done. I've been recording some tutorials and I thought I would offer this as both a tip and a warning for non-fiction authors. So with non-fiction, it can be a good idea to add some tutorials into your book. And when you're writing the book, uh, as I did, I just put a link in the book. I made a link uh, and then I put it in the book. But of course, I hadn't made the tutorial. But at some point, you have to actually make the tutorials. And if you've already done the book, if you've already uh, you know, got the book formatted for print. So the print book is done, the ebook's done, it's up, the audiobook's done. So I can't just remove those tutorials now, it's all done. And I included tutorials for Scrivener. So it's been a while since I recorded one on Scrivener for fiction and nonfiction. I've done one on Publisher Rocket and also one on Pseudowrite. And 
Uh, so what happened earlier this week is I was like, hmm, I cannot put this off any longer. I have to record those tutorials. And look, to be honest, <laughs> recording technical tutorials, it's not one of my favourite things to do. <laughs> I know they're going to be useful and they're also affiliate income tutorials, but uh, you often have to do a lot of takes and then you have to do the editing. So to do a sort of 20 minute tutorial can take all day. So, uh, but I have done those tutorials. So hooray. And uh, I'm actually including one early. So I'm going to share one with you now, which is the Publisher Rocket tutorial on finding keywords in categories. And it was really interesting to do that. Uh, in fact, what I found on Publisher Rocket was super interesting. <laughs> it's given me lots of ideas. But the tutorial is at thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket dash tutorial. Link in the show notes. And uh, I will put it out on the blog as well. But for now, it's just on a page. But yeah, so very interested in putting those out, getting those done. I am almost there. I'm still building out my Shopify store. This is the problem when you have so much backlist in so many formats. <laughs> There's a lot to do. I probably once again did too much. I took on too much at the same time, which is launching a book and trying to build a new uh, site. I'm linking my ConvertKit email, testing delivery with BookFunnel, challenging myself to sort of remember those days of software consultancy when I used to do this as a day job. Of course, I wanted to give up that day job. <laughs> and there have been moments I'm like, hmm, I would really like to get back to creating more things. Some of you have emailed about the timing of launch. I am already running late for sure. But my current plan is to launch to the Patreon community. So thank you, patrons. You're all amazing. This week, I hope to launch to my patrons so that is coming soon. And then to the wider audience around the 20th of July, if you're on my email list, you'll hear about it. And so should be announcing it on the podcast in two weeks as this goes out. And then that will be direct sales only. And then uh, in mid to late August, I will be putting the book up on all the usual stores. So then it is fully wide. So it is almost there, but it is definitely taking longer than expected. And in fact, several of you have emailed about finishing energy and where do I find the finishing energy because it's pretty exhausting to get the book out there once the editing's done. So you've sort of finished the edit and then it's ready for formatting and that's the Let's say that's the creative side done. And then there's this period of publishing that you have to do. And of course, you can work with a publisher <laughs> if you want to. But if you are an independent author, you have to do the publishing. And there's like a hump you have to get over to get the book out there. But how I see finishing energy is, first of all, it's just sheer determination to get the book out there. And I can't stop this close to the goal. I know this book will be useful. So I, I want it out there. I also know that once it's done, I can get back to what I love, which is the writing and the creation side. And I know it doesn't take that long. I mean, this is taking longer because I decided to build a Shopify store as well as everything else. It wouldn't have been, I mean, I would have it out by now if it was just going up on Amazon and Kobo and Apple and all that. But because I want to do it this way, it's taking a bit longer. Plus, I've also taken longer because I've given myself a bit of grace and I haven't been working like a, a crazy person. I've actually been taking breaks <laughs> and looking after myself and giving up and just saying, right, that's enough for today. Because I, as I said, I don't love the things like making tutorials. So I can only do it for a certain amount of time before I'm like, hmm, 
had enough of this. So if you are trying to do finishing energy on things, whatever that is, then yeah, make sure you take enough breaks. But also know that it does, it will eventually work. Uh, With publishing, for example, it's really easy to publish for me now, but I've got lots of other things going on with this one. But once you know how to do it, it's much easier next time. So I'm learning a lot of things. And uh, yeah, so hopefully that helps with finishing energy. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments uh, over the last week. On Kristen's episode, Caroline says, I was literally Googling what's the difference between line editing and other forms of editing when this podcast landed in my phone. Very helpful. Thank you. And on Claire McIntosh's episode on twists, Jessica Flory left a comment on the blog. Fantastic interview. So helpful. Love the marketing tips and the distinction between a reveal and a twist. And then day tripping around Rochester sent a lovely green forest pictures saying, I took a break from writing to explore Fillmore Glen, one of our magical gorge trails in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Greetings from Rochester, New York. Thank you. No, lovely pictures. Thank you so much. So you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Ingram Spark, which I use to print and distribute my self-published print books wide because with Ingram Spark, it's my content, but they help me do more with it. So if you publish through Ingram Spark, you will have access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across, across a global network of distributors, including bookstores like Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, as well as bookshop.org, which has become very popular since the pandemic, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of independent stores in the USA. Of course, it does mean your book will be available to order, but you still have to drive demand. But since having my books on Ingram Spark, I've had many of you send pictures of my print books in libraries, and I've also been able to sell them at book fairs, conventions, and in physical stores like Blackwell's in Edinburgh, where I stumbled upon how to market a book one day, which was very exciting. So you can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. You can also choose your discount percentage. And remember, bookstores and other places, they make their money on buying the books at a discount. And they can't do that if your book is only on Amazon. And of course, they are never going to order from Amazon anyway. So to get into uh, to go through Ingram means you're in the right catalogues for these places to find your book. You can also bulk order your books. For example, if you want back of the room copies for live events or if you work direct with schools or bookstores. I've had several bookstores order direct from me and I just order a box of books on Ingram and get them shipped to the location. So if you want your books available for bookstores and libraries, schools and universities, go wide with your print books. It's your content. Do more with it. Head on over to ingramspark.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons, especially the limited series of futurist episodes, more coming soon, all supported by patrons who also get a monthly Q&A where I answer questions about whatever my patrons want to know. 
Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon and especially a big thank you to those of you who've been supporting for years at this point. You are amazing. I am so glad that you still find the show useful enough to continue supporting it. Welcome to new patrons, Stacey L. Fraser and Graham Can. And as ever, you can support the show for just a few dollars or euros or pounds or whatever your currency is and uh, or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous. And I do drink a lot of coffee. So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Tess Gerritsen is the multi-award winning and internationally best-selling author of the Rizzoli and Isles series adapted for TV and other medical thrillers and suspense novels with over 40 million copies sold. She's also a filmmaker, director and screenwriter and her latest novel is Listen to Me. So welcome to the show Tess. Oh I'm thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. So let's wind the clock back. So you were a medical doctor before you started writing. So how do you incorporate that background into your novels, even many years after you stopped practicing? The funny thing is, when I first started writing books, I didn't incorporate any medicine into it because I was writing romantic suspense. And I thought, oh, nobody cares about medicine. It's a day job for me. And I think that most of us who who have day jobs think of them as humdrum. It wasn't until I wrote a book called Harvest, and that was published in 1996, where the medicine came into play. And I found out, hey, audiences do like these details. So I incorporate my memories of what it's like to be a doctor, also how doctors think. I think that that's what makes it this um, special is we we know how doctors would approach a particular problem. And that's mainly how I incorporate it. When it comes to medical details, I either know it or I have a bunch of textbooks that I can consult or I have colleagues I can ask if it's a specialty I'm not uh, fully aware of. <laughs> well, you said that how doctors think. So how do doctors think compared to how do novelists think? Is it all about solving problems? It is. I mean, you have a patient who comes in with a, an unusual symptom. So you're going to go down your checklist of which systems in the body are we, should we be looking at? And it's a fairly methodical system. And in fact, you know, you can go online probably and have some computer do it for you. But it is a way of approaching a problem, a mystery. I don't think it has any effect on how I write, actually. I think the medical background is more uh, what I draw from for informational purposes and for character purposes. But when I write, I go, I am completely disorganized. And I think it probably surprises people who assume that I must be an organized writer. I don't do outlines. I've tried. I don't have my plot planned out ahead of time. It's very much for me, just taking the path, starting down the dark road and seeing where it takes me. I love that. And I'm also a discovery writer. I call it discovery writer. And I, I actually read that you didn't plot and that it was very encouraging. So what, you mentioned the, the sort of the dark road. So you, where, where do you start in the writing process? How do you follow a disorganized process? I like to start with an emotional springboard, and it has to do with what is the scene that plunges me or my character into the story. And I think that the best premises are those that affect your emotions, and you may evoke something like fear or shock, something that makes you want to ask what happens next. So I start with the premise, and I 
have to know something about my characters beforehand. And that is one thing I do know is who are these people and what kind of a voice do they have? Um, I like to listen to a voice in my head. I like to hear this voice in my head. And that will really guide me down, down this path. When I started writing that book, Harvest, for instance, the voice that I first heard was that of a 12-year-old boy. And he directed a lot of the action. And that that told me where my story was going, which is this 12-year-old boy is going to be one of the main characters, and he's going to help solve the crime. So if you can hear the voice, you know who this person is. You know whether they're male or female, young or old. You can tell by their language whether they're educated or uneducated. And I think that really defines which way the story is going. So, of course, it's funny you mentioned listening to the voice there. Your latest novel is Listen to Me. So where did the premise for that come from? And and tell people, I guess, about the, the premise of that book, since that's your most recent book. Yeah, this one is a very voice. <laughs> this was really inspired by a voice. Uh, and that was the voice of Angela Rizzoli, Jane's mother. I heard her talking and she's a warm, funny, somewhat annoying woman, but you, you want to hang around and see what she says. So that book was started by the thought of Angela Rizzoli. It's an older woman. She's had a lot of things going on in her life in the course of these last 12 books. She was introduced very early on, and things have happened to her. She was a happily married woman who'd raised her children. I mean, she just devoted her life to her husband and her children. And then about halfway through the series, her husband left her for another woman. So now Angela is single. She's on the verge of divorce. She has to find her new life. She's been living in the same suburban house for 30 years. So she knows this street. She knows her neighborhood, and she sees something that bothers her. And that was the first thing she said to me in my head. If you see something, say something. Well, Angela clearly says things. She bothers her daughter about this. And we get to follow Angela's investigation as something of an amateur sleuth who is a nosy neighbor. We also get to follow Jane and Maura, of course. They're doing their own real murder investigation of a nurse who has been bludgeoned in her own home. So we have simultaneous investigations, one that's an amateur, one that's a professional, And they will, in some ways, affect each other's investigations. And you mentioned there there have been 12 other books. So this is book 13 in the Rizzoli and Isles series. So how do you keep readers engaged in a long running series? What are some tips for people who want to write these longer series? Yeah, that is a real challenge because I I don't like a series where the characters never change. I want to see them evolve. And that is, I think, one of one of the things that has kept the series alive is that Jane and Maura are constantly, you know, they're they're growing, they're evolving. Jane, when you first saw her in The Surgeon, was not a very likable person, but then she fell in love. She got married. She had a baby. Uh, so she's matured in, in many ways, mellowed a lot of ways. So she now, I think, is a lot more likable. You also saw her struggle to become respected. That would get really old if that struggle was still going on in book number 12. Um, now it's book number 13. The cops know who she is and they respect her. So we've seen that journey for Jane. We've also seen uh, Mora have a similar journey, although it's been more of a depressing journey because Mora is searching for love. Uh, she's finally found it, but there were a lot of romantic misadventures. And the other thing I would recommend is you have a large universe of characters. There are sub, there are people like Barry Frost, who's Jane's partner in the homicide unit. We've seen his life have ups and downs. We've seen Angela's ups and downs. So I think that it's a little bit like a 
a real life situation where you know your relatives are going through crises, various crises, and you want to follow those. Well, it's interesting because a lot of detective series, and especially those that get adapted for TV, are these sort of more episodic where there isn't such a change because you want to kind of keep having the stuff go on forever. So do you see an end? Because, of course, your characters are moving forward in their lives. And uh, I mean, like you mentioned, Angela there, do you see ends for these characters? Because, of course, that can be very difficult for readers, very difficult for writers. Or do you just see this, this series going on forever? I don't know. Uh, when I finished book 12, I didn't think I was going to write another book. I like to, I just sort of leave my characters where they are, and eventually maybe I'll come back to them. I don't know. I don't think I will ever write a what I would call a finale because I I think of them as real people. I don't, I don't want to kill them. I just think that when they become fully happy and everybody's settled down, the series is really over. No, that's interesting. And you said that I didn't think I'd write another book. And this sort of feeling of I am really done with the series, it seems to me like some writers with the longer series do need to write other things. So as a creative, how do you keep yourself engaged in all your different worlds? Well, I, I do write other books. And that is what has taken, um, it's been five a five-year gap between book number 12 and book number 13. It's because I did other things. I wrote two other books that had nothing to do with the series. I made a film with my son. And I took some time to sort of creatively recharge the batteries. Uh, I think it's interesting that as I get older, I feel that I could, that time is running out And all these crazy ideas I had for books, well, this is the time to write them while I still can. So I am kind of trying to rush through inspirations that I have been harboring for a long time. And now is the time I'm writing them. Oh, that sounds fascinating. So which of these books should we look for to see these fascinations? Well, one of them, I, probably my readers are going, why, is, why did she write this particular book? I wrote a ghost story. I live in the state of Maine, uh, up in New England, and we are rumored to be one of the most haunted states in the country. And years and years ago, back when I was oh, probably in my 20s, I had this idea for a book about a ghost and a single woman who comes to live in this house, and she falls in love with the ghost. It's sort of like the ghost in Mrs. Muir. That's a very old book and also a very old movie. But in this case, the ghost may be dangerous. And so she doesn't know whether she's fallen in love with the perfect lover or whether she's fallen in love with a sadistic spirit. And when because the house comes with a history of women who've died in this house, it becomes more of a thriller. So that book was The Shape of Night. It was fun to write. I loved writing it. I think my readers were puzzled, but that's where your creativity takes you. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. But yes, do you, I mean, obviously at this point in your career, you can experiment and your name is very well known, but do you think publishers do try and box authors in into a certain genre and they probably would have preferred that you just written another couple in your Rizzoli and Isle series? Yeah, publishers will definitely try to box you in (laughs) because they know how to sell your previous book. They know which books sell the best. And clearly series novels sell better because people are waiting for the same characters. So when you have a book that is out of the box, what do you do with it? If your publisher will take it, that's great. But now we have options. Writers can go, they can self-publish, they can independent publish, or they can change publishers for their out-of-the-box books. So I I think we have a lot more freedom, and I'm not as afraid to be writing the unexpected book as I might have been before. 
Oh, that's good. I'm going to have to get the shape of night. I prefer the darker, <laughs> the darker <laughs> supernatural book. Um, but you said there that you took some time to creatively recharge. So what kind of things do you do to creatively recharge? Uh, well, I wrote, a, you know, some television scripts, which, you know, they sold, I got paid, but it hasn't gone into production. I made a film with my son, a documentary film, which was a great deal of fun. We we were hunting for the ancient reasons behind the pork taboo. It sounds like a crazy idea, but I come from a family of restaurateurs. I, I like to eat just about everything, and it always puzzled me that any culture or religion would forbade a source of protein. So my son and I, we went around the world interviewing archaeologists. We were just sort of looking for the ancient history of why pork was ever outlawed. I actually went and watched the trailer for that because I was Googling you and looking for things. And I saw this review on like the Jewish Tribune or something, a Jewish magazine yes. or something. And my <laughs> husband's Jewish and I write sort of religious books and I, I'm very in touch with all that. So I was like, this is this is weird. I did not expect to see you sort of being reviewed in these places. So was this just a completely different world for you in terms of just the, the nonfiction side, this documentary side? It just seemed completely out of left field. It was, but in a way, it, it is similar because it's a mystery. And my son and I were trying to solve the mystery. Uh, it just happens to be a nonfiction mystery with roots that are thousands of years old. And we were like little detectives going from uh, archaeologists to pig farmers to pig behavioral experts, looking for why, why the pig holds such a position in human attitudes. You know, people either think pigs are darling and cute, they're like babe, or they think they're disgusting and dirty. So pigs evoke a lot of emotions. And that's what I was trying to get out of uh, the people we interviewed. That sense of, wow, you know, you either love them or you hate them and why. Mm. And so how was it collaborating with your son? Because I mean, I've co-written some books with my mum and we decided to stop doing these things because <laughs> it was quite stressful. So how was how that? I mean, it was quite a different thing, but how is co-writing and co-working with family? Oh, my son and I are, I think we have a lot of similarities in tastes and how we approach things. So we had a great time. I really enjoyed working with him. He's also, um, he's more on the technical side. He was very good with dealing with all the cameras and all the technical equipment and the editing room. Whereas I think I handled more of the scholarly side. You know, my, my, college degree was in anthropology. So it was in my wheelhouse and I was the one responsible for trying to contact all these scholars that we dealt with. So we kind of, we split the work that way and it worked uh, very well. And I think we both had similar ideas for how we wanted the final edit to look. So as you mentioned, you've written some scripts and of course, now you're a filmmaker and Rizzoli and Isles is a TV show. So what are some of the differences between writing novels and also the world of TV and film. Uh, the great thing about writing novels, you are in control. You don't have people asking you for this rewrite or that right, rewrite, unless it's your editor. So I love being in charge of my universe. I think the downside of writing, certainly for TV uh, scripts, is that you have a whole a bunch of people who are telling you, oh, could you do this? Could you do that? And sometimes you don't agree with what they're saying, but you do it anyway. So that I think that's, that is the, the real stress for working in television and film, uh, unless it's a documentary, where you are working with a 
committee. And as you've discovered, collaboration is not always easy. <laughs> no, absolutely. And then I guess with the TV show, with your characters, which is so close to, to you, how has that been? Because of course, we hear as authors, we those of us who are not adapted, uh, hear that basically they just want the author not to be there. They don't want to have the author anywhere near anything because we're just a pain in the neck. So, so how's that been? Well, you know, the Rizzoli and Isles TV series, they invited me to join them in the writer's room and help them with uh, what that we call break story. Uh, but I was under contract as a novelist, so I really could never participate. But they were always very welcoming, I have to say. And then they had their own team of writers, so they wrote all the episodes. I had nothing to do with it. I got a consultant's fee, but I didn't have to do anything for it. So it's like the best job of the world. <laughs> you get paid for not having to work. And I think that they may Made some creative changes when they adapted it to television. This always happens. The main one being that suddenly my very ordinary looking characters became glamorous. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're the most, they're such beautiful women, both these, both these actors who play Jane and Maura. I think the other thing was, uh, I was told very early on that neither character would get married in the course of the episode of the series because they wanted the focus to be on the female friendship. And they felt that having men around would be a little distraction. So that's that was one thing they set. Uh, that was a ground rules for Rizzoli and Isles, this television series. And sure enough, neither Jane nor Maura got married over seven years. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of think that has to happen too, because when they get married, either it's got to be the end of a series or they're going to have to have some kind of disaster because happy, happy people can't be happy for long in these dramas. <laughs> that's right. And and you've hit the nail on the head. That, that's just, that is really the key about drama or series is when everybody is happy, it's a happily ever after. Where do you go from there? There's, there's nowhere to go. So you have to keep a little drama going. Yeah, exactly. So on your website, you have this great quote from the Chicago Tribune, which says she has an imagination that allows her to conjure up depths of human behavior so dark and frightening that she makes Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft seem like goody two shoes, which I just thought that was perfect. So this is something I think about a lot. How do you tap into that creative darkness, but without being overcome by it? Um, well, first of all, where does it come from? Because I'm not a very dark person. I'm actually a very happy person. I think it, maybe I tend towards looking at dark side, at the dark side, because when I was a child, my mother dragged me to every horror film that was made by Hollywood. I, I grew up on a steady diet of horror. And this was back in the Hollywood golden age of horror films. So when they weren't really, it wasn't bloody, it was more psychological. It was, it was more a sense of unease as opposed to slasher films. I love those old movies. So that's probably been part of the inspiration for me. I don't, when I'm writing, I mean, I'm writing these horrifying scenes, but it doesn't scare me so much. And I think the reason for it is it's the same reason you can't tickle yourself. You know what you're doing. You're in control. You can stick your fingers in your armpit and you're not going to get tickled because you know what you're doing. And I, I feel that way about writing. I can be writing a horrifying scene, but I'm in control and I know <laughs> when I'm going to pull out the knife. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good about keeping the dark side away from my real life. It's, it's just all fiction.
Yeah, and I think about I'm a very happy person too. And I actually think a lot of the horror writers I know are the happiest people because they put all their darkness on the page and their life is quite happy. <laughs> yes, I know. And it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm a very, it's really funny because I just, I'm trying to think about, I don't think I've ever been depressed in my life. I inherited the happy gene from my dad and that is a real blessing. <laughs> Oh, that, that's really interesting. Then, so that quote's on the front page of your website, and then there's these quite serious photos of you, the author, <laughs> sort of looking as if you're very serious and dark. So how have you had to sort of curate your brand in that way? You know, the brand kind of came about on its own. I, I never was consciously branding myself. It's just that the books I write kind of branded me. And people make assumptions based on the books we write. I mean, if you write a spy novel, they assume you must be a whiz with a gun and they want you on a desert island because you'll keep them safe. And I don't think that's that's true at all. I think we just have active imaginations. And we put ourselves in this in in the foots, in the shoes of heroes. We write about people we'd like to be. We write about the perfect version of ourselves when in truth we may be totally unlike these people. Mm, I'm glad you say that because of course we have to have diverse characters and we're writing about different things. But as you say, imagination, I think imagination and research, good research is is obviously very important, but we're not just writing about our lives. If we were, it'd be very, very boring. <laughs> yes, I, I got up and drank coffee. I mean, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. So I wanted to ask, you were first published in 1987. So what do you think has changed in the publishing industry and what is different for authors starting out now? Oh, well, so much has changed. I mean, when I was in, in 1987, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, um, I, and I, the fax machine had just come in. And we, we didn't have to do media, social media. So back then, you wrote your book, you turned it in, you mailed it in. And sometimes you got a phone call back from a publisher saying, we love your book, we're going to publish it. So those were the days of, um, I, we just wrote. Writers just wrote. We didn't have all these other responsibilities. Now, when you write, you're expected to get on social media and tweet and do Facebook and go on tour. And I think there's a lot more on the shoulders of writers. The good part, however, is that if you can't get published, if you can't find a publisher who likes your your little out-of-the-box book, you can go it alone. And I think that's what's happened is a democratization of, of uh, writers now. Anybody can get published. And now, you know, the vast majority probably shouldn't be published, but anyone can get published and you can put your work out there and, and see what the public thinks. So I like that aspect of it. Well, so you mentioned that the job of the writer is, has really changed. And I get comments sometimes people say, oh, well, you're not a real writer because you don't spend 100% of your time writing. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. <laughs> exactly. So how do you balance it? Like what percentage of your time is writing and what is the rest of what the job of a writer is? Oh, I think probably 50% of my time is writing because a lot of the rest of it is, especially when your book comes out, you have a lot of promotional stuff you have to do, whether it's climbing onto an airplane and going to a bookstore or doing social media or working on your web page. Everybody has a web page now. I wish I wish we could go back to the days when I didn't have to worry about it. But I, I think I'm pretty good about, you know, I, I don't do Facebook and Twitter very much unless I have to. And I pretty much use Twitter just to keep up with the international news. 
And I, I think it would help a lot of writers if they turned off their internet and just got to work on their books. Yeah, I think we all dream of that. But I mean, it was your PR person who reached out for this podcast, in which I really appreciate you you doing it. And But it's funny, because when I heard from her, I was like, how does such a famous author like Tess Gerritsen still need to go on podcasts? Because it feels <laughs> like, like you like you said, I mean, well, why? Why is this necessary? So even for big name authors now, this seems to be an important thing? Or, or do you feel like it's just because that's what the publishers want? I think it's for, it, it, it is a good thing. It's a great thing that I can be on your podcast or I can do Zoom sessions. And the reason that it's so much better now is that we don't have to travel the way we used to. That takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of energy and it takes years off your life and you have to travel across time zones. So in that regard, I think podcasts and Zoom are fantastic. And I have, I've actually kind of liked the last couple of years of not having to leave my house for a while. But we all have to do it now. I mean, you'll see John Grisham and James Patterson are doing interviews and they have to um, they have to promote their books. It's part of what is expected of us by the publishers. Yes. And of course, a lot of independent authors, we have to do that because we don't have a publisher. But equally, that's what's so interesting is that it's expected for every author. So did you have sort of media training? Did you have to learn all this stuff? Or are you just sort of making it up as you go along? Oh, I make it up as I go along. I, I was just sort of thrown in the, you know, you, you. I started off with the first media really was for Harvest in 96. And I didn't have any media training. I guess they just threw me on the road. And <laughs> that was it. And you learn a lot as you go further into your career. I've learned, for instance, on Zoom, you know, try and always keep your mouth in a smiley position. You can't let your negative emotions show up on Zoom. And I've learned to do my own makeup and all these things that, um, well, of course, most women do, but it's a different kind of a makeup when you know you're going to be on the screen somewhere. Mm, yes, that's why I do audio only. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that because I'm sitting here in shorts right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I haven't done my hair or my makeup. But one thing that's interesting is, uh, you know, when you've been sort of in public a lot since, since I guess the 80s or like you said, 96, when that when you first were on the media. But it feels like now there's a, a need for authenticity, but also a difficulty in protecting your privacy so how do you sort of share in these authentic ways but also protect your privacy um i i the where i do share is when i feel emotionally connected to some news story that's the only time i really talk about myself very much i mean i don't like to share photos of my family i will very rarely share a photo if it's really cute of my granddaughters <laughs> and i just you know, I, I try not to engage too much on Facebook because I'd rather not uh, people not know where I am or where I'm traveling or that I'm on holiday. I like keeping that aspect of my life separate. Now, if you want to find out what kind of a person I am, you probably should look at the character Maura Isles because that's me. <laughs> I've fed, I mean, I put so much of myself into her personality and that's probably as intimate a look at me as you're going to get is through Maura. Mm, that's interesting you say that because I feel the same way like if you want to get to know me then read some of my fiction which is odd because people think oh well then you should write a memoir or something like that but you really <laughs> feel like you're in your fiction yeah I do I mean there's so much there's so much that we writers put of ourselves into our stories not always 
being aware of it. So I'm writing a book now about a retired spy who's in her 60s. And I thought, wow, she's there's a lot about her that's that's like me, just the way she looks at the world and the fact she loves being with her chickens and the, and the fact that that she, I mean, she'd rather not engage with people at certain times. And that that feels like, you know, in some ways, an aspect of Tess Gerritsen. Mm, does that book have a title? Not I have a title in my head right now. I'm not I'm not sure it's that's going to be the actual title, but it's based on the fact that I live in a small town in Maine where we have, I don't know why, a lot of retired spies living up here, a lot of <laughs> retired CIA. And I just I thought, well, would it be fun to, to do a story about older spies who are no longer active? And then one woman, one of them, a woman, finds a dead body in her driveway and doesn't know if it's related to work that she did when she was younger. So that idea of older people who have been cast aside, who've been put out to pasture, but who really have a lot of valuable information and talents going back to work for other reasons, uh, that fascinated me. Oh, that's good. So have you, you've seen that movie, right? Red, um, Retired, I did. Dangerous. I did. Yeah. I and I love that's the thing. I love this old guy, these creaky, creaky people with bad joints and then maybe they can't run as fast, but boy, they still have the smarts. Oh yeah. And and Helen Mirren in that, she's just fantastic. So, yes. Yeah. And and talking of, of more maturity, I guess, the longevity in the writing business seems like a rarity. And people who've sort of been publishing for 30 plus years and, and are still going, I mean, that is amazing. So what are your tips for people who want to forge this kind of successful long-term writing career? I think it's really a matter of productivity. A lot of beginning writers think they'll write a book, it'll be a bestseller, and they can relax on their laurels. Well, you really can. You have to be constantly turning out another story. The other secret to longevity, I think, is is taking the time to write the book that you want to write. I mean, eventually, if you're successful in your first series, that's what, that's everything, that, that's that's all your publisher's going to want is that series. And you have to keep your creativity recharged. So if a story comes to you that's out of the box, indulge yourself and go ahead and, and write that. But I think the main thing is that you should always be productive. I mean, as soon as you stop you, as soon as you finish one book, you should already be playing with the idea for the next book. There's a saying in publishing, the front list sells the backlist. So your most recent book is going to is going to pull readers in and they're going to go, I want to read what she wrote before. And they'll go and read earlier books of yours. I mean, my first romantic suspense novels published in 87, they're still selling. They're still turning in some nice royalty checks. So longevity is just a matter of refusing to give up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess for you must have seen writers who've left the industry over that time. I mean, I've only been in it a decade and I've seen a lot of writers leave. So what have you noticed from those who've left so we can maybe avoid those pitfalls? I think a lot of people leave because they lose their publisher. They just can't find a traditional publisher to work with them. What I would say to them is if you still want to write, if you still have stories, uh, for heaven's sakes, become an indie publisher. Do it, you know, put it out yourself. Don't stop. And I think that discouragement of being turned down by maybe a publisher you've been with for a decade, that's that's really got to hurt. But if you're a real writer, you're, you've still got those ideas percolating in your head. You still want to tell that story. Uh, don't stop and find another way to get it out to the public. So you, I guess you're an indie filmmaker, right? Are you interested yeah. in the indie author route? You know, I think it's really kind of an interesting idea because 
I often think that there are stories that I write that are so far out there, I should write them under a pseudonym that nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) And I played with that idea once or twice. But so far, I have been able to sell all the books to traditional publishers. But if I get an idea that's completely off the wall and turned down, yes, I would definitely do that. Oh, that's good to hear. So where can people find you and your books online? Uh, you can find my website at tessgarretson.com. I am on Twitter at Tess Garretson, and I'm on Facebook if you just do a search for me. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Tess. That was great. Thank you. So I hope you found the interview with Tess interesting and I always love talking to writers who've been in the industry a long time. They have seen a lot of ups and downs and made it on the roller coaster of this creative life. So on to marketing next episode as I talk to Becky Robinson about her book Reach, create the biggest audience for your book, message or cause. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.